Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi everyone, great to be back for the latest episode of The Other Hand. Jim, as is often the case these days, you will notice he's away sunning himself on some beach somewhere, so I hope he's having a great time. So I've taken the opportunity to get somebody really interesting into the studio today, and I'm delighted to have back a relatively recent guest, uh, Professor Shane O'Mara, Professor of Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. Thanks very much for giving us some more of your time, Shane. Uh, as well as just filling in for Jim, which of course are big shoes to fill, one of the reasons why I've asked you back is some of the really interesting stuff that you've been writing on your Substack blog lately. And it has all sorts of overlaps with A, what I'm interested in, he says modestly, and be the, the subject matter of this podcast, which is very loosely business, finance, economics and politics, um, the business of ordinary life, really. And we, we, we like to talk about pretty much anything under those headings. But one of the things that you did in your most recent Substack piece was, was talk about all sorts of different things, social media. You quoted one of the great poems, Yeats's uh, the Second Coming. Tell us just a little bit about what motivated you to write that and in three bullet points or less, summarize what it was that you were trying to say and what, and I'll then explain why that piqued so much interest in me. Thanks, Chris, and great to be to be back. So why did I write it? I, I wrote this because I have this sense when I look at politics uh, in Ireland, in the UK, in France, uh, in the US and a number of other countries, that there's a kind of a sense of almost fake anger among the political classes, a kind of an anger that's that's almost difficult to take seriously. I generally don't, on my Substack, in, engage in, in kind of political writing per se, but I, I'm going to pick on a politician who's sufficiently remote that I, I think it's a good example. So George Koob is a neuropharmacologist of great distinction. He's worked on addiction 
and similar matters for many, many decades and has pioneered lots of treatment for alcohol and other addictions into the clinic. And Kube recently was appointed to the National Institute of Addiction in the US. And he suggested that perhaps we should drink less, which I think is probably a good idea. Uh, Many people drink too much. One of the kind of messages uh, is that you can continue drinking, but just don't drink to excess. So his suggestion was to cut your drinking to a couple of beers a week. Up pops Ted Cruz, and you can find this video on the internet. Uh, Ted Cruz is a senator for the Republican Party in in the U.S., where he's in a bar shouting and roaring about this idea that we should drink less. And he's standing there with guys who are angry uh, about this suggestion. Um, and uh, he's he's misrepresenting it. You know, they're coming for your beer. And then he ends it by saying, and don't drink Bud Light. <laughs> and I, it's To me, this is kind of manufactured outrage. You have a guy who is clever, because I, I, I don't think Ted Cruz is stupid, Uh, but who doesn't really have a role. He's got a shallow cause for his anger to make his politics a bit more high stakes. He's he's trying to find meaning of some description in uh, these kind of, let's call it performative bellicosity, because it's not really real. Nobody's coming to stop you drinking more than a couple of uh, beers a week. Uh, But he's doing it because there's a kind of a feedback loop there that he enjoys. He kind of gets gets himself worked up in a way that's, completely out of proportion to the outrage involved. So that that's really what the, the piece is about, is to try and think through what's going on uh, with people like that. Um, I think that's what motivated my interest in it was precisely that, which is that I notice, as I'm sure everybody else does, the ways in which so many people, so many of us, get bent out of shape by, at the end of the day, very, very trivial issues and you reference something, a, a topic or an aphorism or a saying close to my own heart that I've been thinking about for years, which is the narcissism of small differences, which I think was, a, I think, you can correct me on this, was originally coined by Freud. Yeah, it is. It's Freudian. Yeah. Which was designed to, to, to describe precisely what we're talking about, which is that when we ain't got nothing much to fight about, we'll still find something very, very uh, trivial to uh, really kill each other about. I used the example in um, a Substack post I wrote, partly in response or not in response to, but to really, that was really prompted by your post. Um, I wrote something yesterday in which I mentioned Monty Python, which I I guess half of listeners will never have heard of. Um, But Monty Python did some famous stuff years and years ago. And one of their more well-known films was a film called The Life of Brian, in which the narcissism of small differences was front and centre in a conversation between various terrorist groups, I use that term advisedly, uh, one being the People's Front of Judea and the other being the Judean People's Front, which, of course, to an outside observer, they both sound exactly the same thing. But, of course, the explanation for this uh, narcissistic small difference over which they fought was when one of them explained to the interviewer, well, uh, I guess I do hate the Romans. I hate the Romans who occupy us. They torture us. They kill us. They tax us. They imprison us. And they are colonial masters. But, you know, I hate the people's front of Judea even more than I hate the Romans. And there are so many different ways that one could, could explain this. But we see this so much in our daily lives. And I wonder whether it's all ever been thus. I mean, as, as Freud coined this expression long before social media. Yeah, yeah 100 years ago. <laughs> came into being. But whether social media in particular, but other forces in our society are making this this worse. 
and I speculated in my piece that one thing that I think is making it worse, apart from the social media thing, which is an interesting debate, but I think a very familiar one in its own right. My slightly controversial hypothesis is that one of the reasons why we fight over so little is that we have um, solved the economic problem for vast swathes of our population, that we've reached uh, the top of Maslow's hierarchy. Maslow was a sociologist, behavioralist, psychologist of, of, of um, many years ago as well, postulated his famous pyramid that uh, you began at the bottom needing food, shelter, and you, you, you climbed this pyramid of needs until you reached something called self-actualization, which I guess is what all the new age type people do with their waving of crystals and knitting their own yogurt, he says somewhat pejoratively. But uh, self-actualization, of course, um, whether or not you agree with Maslow's hierarchy, and, and I know it's not popular in all behavioral scientist quarters, but something like that is going on, is my hypothesis. And that having solved all of the food, shelter, reasonable food, shelter, and other bodily requirements that we need, we've reached the top of the pyramid. And I re recall reading lots of different biographies over the years of, of pop stars and other celebrities and other very, very successful people. And a common theme emerged in many of them. I remember reading a biography of Paul McCartney, for example, um, a biography of uh, Led Zeppelin's lead guitarist, Jimmy Page, and others, who uh, at various points at the peak of their musical and other powers um, descended into addiction and other forms of um, self-harm. Uh, and went on strange journeys, from which many of them recover and, and, and live long and healthy lives, Paul McCartney and Jimmy Page being examples of that. But the, the expression that biographers use is the same in both cases. These two guys reached the top of their particular mountains and discovered there was nothing there. And I think that uh, for an awful lot of people, this is the controversial uh, point that I'm making, because, oh, of course, we, we obsess these days about still how many poor people there exist in the world. They do. Uh, how many people have difficulties with housing? They do. But colossal numbers in our societies, in the West in particular, developed economies in general, have solved the economic problem. And we're discovering in this godless society that we live in that there is nothing at the top of our particular mountains. So we still go to battle with each other. That's my hypothesis, Shane. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's actually very reasonable. And, uh, you know, there's the... Uh... The great line in that Bruce Willis film from, gosh, 40 years ago that Alan Rickman declaims about, was that Hannibal wept for there were no more worlds to conquer, which uh, is a made-up line. I, I, I discuss it a bit in uh, my new book. I think it was uh, Alexander the Great, actually. Alexander the Great, thank you. Um, That's right. That's and, uh, yeah, I don't it, know why I remember that, yes. I didn't um, know it was a made-up quote. He didn't say oh, it. Oh, yeah. No, no. It's a, it's a mashup of about four. I always check quotes. I discover, actually, I, and I, I go through a few of them on, on the Brave Pizza blog, uh, lots of quotes from Orwell don't exist. Orwell was an early hero of mine. And uh, when you see words like obliterate in a quote from Orwell, you know it's not Orwell because he would never use a word like obliterate. Uh, anyway, that's kind of by the by. I, I think that is the, the issue. People... Uh, don't have new worlds to conquer um and it, in fact you know jimmy page is a, is a great example uh, of somebody who peaked in his late 20s uh probably early 30s and hasn't been musically interesting since then uh which is a you know a great shame uh, I, I was and still am a great lover of led zeppelin's music whereas robert plant actually went off and did different things he recorded with country 
uh, and Western stars. Uh, Neil Young is another good example of somebody who went off and did something different. You know, so I, I, I wonder, you know, about the, the extent of the kind of self-consciousness of, of people in terms of where they're looking. If they look down uh, and they look behind, they can see where they've come from. But if all they're doing is, is looking up to the next mountain, eventually you'll climb Everest uh, and there are no more mountains to climb. So you need to change the game. I, I suspect a lot of people find themselves in places where they don't know what to do. So Ted Cruz, in, in my slightly catty example, he filled in a morning for himself. He, he's not in Washington you know, dealing with the problems of the the electricity grid in in Texas, which we this far away know is 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 problematic. He's not doing things that are meaningful for his constituents, but he is filling in his own time doing something uh, which he finds meaning from, and he presumably gets you know a few hundred likes on Twitter or whatever, uh, and that's the kind of incentive that he's actually responding to. Um, Harold Macmillan, a British Prime Minister from 100 years ago, not quite, uh, famously uh, has been condemned ever since he said this, but he did say to the British people, you've never had it so good. good. And I'm hopefully not going to be condemned for trying to say something similar. But at the time, of course, what he said was absolutely right. And an awful lot of people had never had it so good. That's just the the point of economic progress, I I guess. But it's also true today that... um, Uh, Even more so, we've never had it so good. So it must be very tricky for a politician, particularly in the most successful economy in in the world, the United States, which has the richest people in the world, in one of the richest states, in one of the richest economies, and he's in Texas, uh, Senator Cruz, to stand up and say, well, we've got a great life. My job is just to make sure things tick over nicely and that the economy grows a little bit every year so that uh, things stay roughly as they are, but gradually improve so that your kids' lives will be a bit better than yours. I'm going to make sure that the lights come on every night, and I'm going to make sure that things work, that uh, things run on time, that potholes are filled. But I ain't got a big vision for you. I'm just going to make sure that things tick over nicely. That's not really a manifesto that's going to get people elected, is it? No, it's the challenge of of technocracy versus... uh kind of setting out a, a glorious uh, thing that you can conquer in the future. Uh, isn't why it? do we fall for it? Why do we, as an electorate, do you think, in We've, our mind? We have very limited bandwidth. Our cognitive bandwidth is, is pretty small. You've got your everyday life to be getting on with. And you don't. we don't sit around in deliberative chambers together. We have, you know, conversations at, at dinner time, or uh, we might listen to something uh, when we're out walking about uh, on a podcast or on the radio or whatever, but uh, we actually, and we are cognitive misers, you know, we, we vote for these people to do things for us. And I'm sure Ted Cruz's constituents think, well, he's a Republican. I vaguely believe that kind of Republican stuff. I kind of uh, identify with his politics. So I'm sure he'll do a fine job. And and uh, they may not think about him again. Uh, but Cruz, you know, is in the, you know, there's this lovely phrase from economics. I, I always like, I think it's price finding. Or price discovery. Price discovery. That's right. Uh, he's in a similar kind of place, isn't he? Social media has given him a, a new means for social discovery. Uh, he, he's getting feedback in a way that he wouldn't have had feedback, let's say, forty years ago. You know, somebody would have had to sit down and write a letter, um, or somebody would have had to pick up the phone and phone his office. Uh, whereas now the feedback is instantaneous and it feels real. Uh, but I think the the problem is the half-life of the feedback. 
uh, actually is very, very short. You know, you, you consider all those amazing Twitter campaigns that uh, went on over the, the, you know, the 10 years of, of Twitter's glorious or glory years. And where are they now? Where are they? 144 characters or the 280 characters or whatever it is. They're all gone um, they, they, and they end up not mattering. Um, and I, I, I think the problem is he, I, I don't know Ted Cruz from at all, so I, I won't speak about him. But there, there, there's a temptation to respond to those kinds of incentives because they feel real and immediate, um, uh, even though the actual business of politics is things like making sure the electricity grid doesn't collapse making sure that your transport is working, you know, all the, the, the kind of stuff that technocrats like, um, but uh, it's not the kind of stuff that somebody goes into politics as a form of show business uh, will like. It's, it's, it's not what they want. And, they, and I, I shouldn't let the moment pass without disinterring the great uh, and catty Hollywood phrase that uh, politics is show business for ugly people. <laughs> Indeed. This stuff is important because um, for all sorts of reasons, social, political and economic. I'll just deal with the economics and you, you feel free to mention any of the, of the other things that are important because it's it's about almost instant gratification versus uh, longer term thinking. And as a neuroscientist, you know that um, there are hypotheses, if not evidence, that when we are doing the instant gratification thing versus the long term thinking thing, we are using different parts of our brain. Um, and in the world of investing, for example, you've got short-term traders who are trying to make a buck, essentially betting on two flies crawling up a wall or the financial market equivalent of that on day-to-day -day trading. And you've got people like Warren Buffett, the world's, one of the world's richest men, who, who's only ever seemed to be able, capable of thinking in terms of decades, not even years. And those two people coexist in the world of finance and produce certain outcomes. The most important outcome that longer term patient thinking has resulted in is economic growth. Economic growth really only started, and people find this very hard to believe, in about the 1750s to the second half of the, of, of the 1700s. Since before then, for thousands of years, economies oscillated. Yeah, they sometimes had some growth, sometimes they didn't. But over 2,000 years, or really going all the way back as far as we can get some data, there was no economic growth in the world at all. It was very Malthusian. Every time there was some economic growth, population increased and people starved to death. And it was as crude as that. And it wasn't until people started saving and investing for the future in the 1700s when the mechanism started to come into being, banking, finance, being able to, to save money and invest it, hoping your ship comes in, all those phrases, that economic the growth started. And what we take for granted today, economic growth, that people worry when it's not there, is a very recent phenomena in terms of human history. But it requires patience. It requires long-term thinking. It requires thinking about the far-flung future as opposed to instant gratification. And that's about which part of the brain that we're using and why we're using that part of the brain rather than another. And there's a there's an incredible piece of jargon called hyperbolic discounting which dis which is a piece of jargon that i know from the economics world it may uh, cross over into yours that describes the ultimate in short-term thinking which uh, the ultimate hyperbolic discounter is the drug addict who no matter what the long-term consequences of his or her actions are has to have what he or she needs today um, and i think there are all sorts of resonances around what you were saying about 
Ted Cruz and about all sorts of behaviours of other people today and our politics generally, which worry me from an economic growth point of view, particularly where I'm sitting in the UK, is that there is such little long-term thing. We seem to all have, have we all become hyperbolic discounters? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I, I don't know either. My, my sense is that uh, economies can and do make long-term uh, bets. You know, we, we've done that through the education system. We uh, spend a long time educating kids. We forbid things like working in factories at the age of 12. We, we've done away with all sorts of things that, that children were expected to do, you know, 100 years ago. Um, but I, I guess, you know, there's a kind of a, 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 to my mind, a part answer in what you've already said. You know, for most of humanity's existence, we lived in a resource poor environment like a, an astonishingly resource-poor environment and a very, very dangerous environment. You know, we, we evolved in the uh, uh, in the, the, the Great Rift Valley in, in uh, Africa and made a slow journey out of Africa on multiple occasions uh, over perhaps 100,000 years in what was a very dangerous environment. You know, uh, getting to Siberia from uh, Africa is going to be a costly and long-term endeavor. You're going to meet creatures that you won't have met in uh, Africa, you're going to need clothing. You're going to need to develop new ways of hunting. There, there are lots of things like that that uh, are, uh, leave their mark on us. And the, the, the danger uh, of our environment, we're kind of miscalibrated for that now. Um, you know, again, to, to pick on Ted Cruz for a moment, the danger in his environment is not that a tiger is going to eat him or uh, he's going to be trampled by an elephant. It's that somebody on the Senate floor is going to not allow a policy that he's in favor of. Uh, or somebody's coming for his beer. Or somebody's coming for his beer, you know. They, 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 and the, these are specious dangers. But um, for most of our life history uh, uh, on this planet, being wary and worried about bad stuff, um, as one psychologist, uh, Roy Ballmeister, puts it, bad is stronger than good, makes an awful lot of sense. Um, because uh, we had had this uh, evolutionary history and we have to make trade-offs you know um and uh, depending on the resourcing available to you the the trade-offs that you make uh, uh can differ quite uh, dramatically so you you've brought up the example of hyperbolic discounting uh, warren buffett is capable of of deferring gratification for decades upon decades at a time i guess he's 90 odd now um and he's making bets that are 50 years uh, in duration uh, 
many of us do that with our pension schemes. You know, you, you take out a pension when you're 21, 22, and you won't see a payback until your late 60s. So that's a 45 or 50 year kind of uh, uh, span. But we can only do that because we're in an environment that is resource rich. If you're resource poor, you're going to forget about tomorrow because you have to survive today. Um, and this is this idea from economics, but also from evolutionary biology and from psychology, that uh, trade-offs are a simple fact of life. Um, and trade-offs make a huge difference about how you live. You know, So if you're, if you're affluent, the, the kinds of things that you can do the, the kinds of things that you can do with your life are very, very different to, to people who are poor. And there's plenty of good evidence on this. There's a field trials, for example, in India showing that farmers before the harvest are much more likely to in, engage in, quote, temporal discounting. Um, they're not, they're, they haven't been paid for their harvest yet, so that they have to take risks that they wouldn't take after they get paid. Uh, and there are parallel studies in, in uh, the US showing that being poor absorbs working memory capacity that uh, is not the case for uh, people who are well off. I'll give you, I'll give you a simple example. Uh, you go to a shopping mall in a wealthy part of, of New Jersey and you go to a shopping mall in a, in a poor part of New Jersey. So let's take the, the, the poor part first. You ask people uh, to, do, uh, to think about how they will solve problems like your car is broken and you need $50 to fix it or you need uh, $1,000 to fix it. Uh, if you're poor, having $1,000 to fix your car is a terrible challenge. Uh, if you need $50, you can probably borrow that from somebody and you, you can probably get by. If you're rich needing $1,000, you might think about it, but you can do it. When you make people solve problems like this and then challenge them with tasks that tax working memory, what you find is their ability to uh, engage in simple problem solving is impaired relative to people who haven't been given this challenge. And the idea is that being poor is a constant worry. Uh, you know, you have to get through today. Uh, you have to feed your child today. Uh, you'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Uh, you have to somehow make a trade-off, uh, as one newspaper puts it, between heating and eating. Um, there are those kinds of things. And, and, and I think the tragedy of the modern world is that we're wealthy enough to solve these problems for poor people at relatively little cost. We know that school meals programs are uh, enormously successful in, in all sorts of ways for relieving problems on straightened families. Other things that people don't think about, uh, you can raise IQ in uh, uh, the children of the poor by giving them eye tests and getting their eyes tested so they can read. There, there, there are lots of things that we can do, but I, I think we have this suspicion in the modern world where we, we think if I get something or you get something, you're taking it from me, that the pie is actually quite small. And in the modern world, that's not true. Uh, we've got lots and lots of non-rival goods. Uh, there is a magic money tree if we want it to be there. Capacity is actually the problem. One of the things that strikes me from what you're saying there about um, our needs and our wants and all those deep philosophical things is, is something that I've experienced in the world of finance. Working in banking and finance for many decades, I came across a lot of rich people of one kind or another. And almost without exception, if ever I was able to have a beer with them and ask them the philosophical question that finance people very occasionally, not very often, ask themselves, how much is enough? 
the answer was always the same. It was always more, no matter how much these people had. And the second thing I always observed, which is something that uh, has been confirmed by lots of uh, experiments conducted by behavioral scientists in general and economists in particular, is that what matters for us as a species is not actually the absolute amount of income that we have. Obviously, for poor people, that is very important. But above a certain small level, the absolute amount of income and wealth that we have isn't as important as how much we have relative to our peer group. It's relativities that matter to us as human beings. Uh, compared to um, the absolute level of income. I mean, the Bible contains um, stories about this. The parable of the vineyards is precisely about, about this issue. It's about relativities. It's not about absolute levels levels of income, which is an interesting psychological phenomenon, isn't it? And again, yeah, it's... because we're all about status. What we're always doing is, is uh, checking where we are relative to other people. I, and, and this speaks to a, a really interesting literature on... Uh, what people think is unfair. Uh, and I wrote about this uh, some time ago on, on my Substack uh, about the idea of inequality. And inequality is a, a useful measure in all sorts of ways, but it actually doesn't capture what's wrong with people or, or what people think is wrong with their lives. And what people worry about is not inequality. I don't care that that uh, David Beckham, for example, just to pick on, on somebody who's who I guess is very wealthy, has hundreds of millions in the bank. I don't know if he does or not. I guess I'm sure he does. I don't care about him. What I, what I really care about or what people care about is economic unfairness. Uh, and this is a, a, a kind of a psychological variable, not a, a numerical variable to do with the difference between uh, my income and somebody else's income. We want fairness uh, in our lives rather than uh, a reduction in inequality. And, and we know from economics that we can reduce inequality very easily. I uh, just make the rich poor and inequality uh, goes away. But that's a kind of a pyrrhic victory. Or we can have wars. Wars tend to reduce inequality. So the, the, there are these kind of weird paradoxes of, of uh, shall we say, affluence. We also have another really interesting problem uh, or issue that kind of speaks to this issue of status, that uh, voters vote against their own financial interests, uh, making themselves poorer. And the Brexit vote is a great example of that, that um, uh, Britain is a materially poorer place, probably by 5% of GNP, than it would have been had Brexit not happened. You have the, you know, the, and this kind of thing happens in lots and lots of other places, uh, because the issue is that people um, are voting on the basis of the message that they're sending to others. And it, it's not a rational how much money in my pocket calculation. Uh, it comes down much more to the issue of how I am relative to somebody else, how I'm sending a message to people who live in North London, as the the, the, uh, the uh, kind of stereotype has it, uh, and those kinds of things. And they're prepared, at least in the short term, to take a bit of a hit uh, where that's concerned. I think there's a lot of regret remorse about that decision and i'm oh yeah I'm, buyer's remorse of course is, is I'm, I'm hopeful not a little learning as well because i do think that it, it was a behavioral uh, cognitive process the brexit thing i don't think it was economic at all i i think it was very complicated and different people had very different motivations for voting the way that they did particularly to leave but i do think a very important driver of that vote to leave was the was the desire to stick 
two or one finger up to the elites of North London and that they didn't actually care if it meant longer-term economic harm. It was worth it, their short-term gratification that they achieved from sticking it to the so-called elites was worth whatever potential economic losses were, were in the far-flung future. And at the time, I think that was a very powerful psychological force for that vote. But I do think that there has been some learning because two, two out of three people polled in the UK now say that it was a bad decision. So there, there is some hope from, from the Brexit disaster. Not much because we're still living with the disaster and we have to live now with those longer term economic consequences, many of which haven't even been felt yet. You talked about 5% of GDP, which is actually a very good uh, reasonable estimate of what it's cost us so far. And I think that measure is likely to grow rather than shrink. But, but what what do I know? Um, one of the things that strikes me about all of this, of course, is is the, the way in which this narcissism of small differences, the way in which we end up yelling each other because we're frightened of losing our beer and other trivial issues, whatever the drivers of that is, is that we have vacated the center ground of our politics. And this comes back to the Yeats poem, The Second Coming, Brilliant, brilliant piece of work that you quote in your piece, I quote in mine, I quote you quoting Yeats. Um, and he talks, again, a long time before social media came into being about um, uh, nasty, horrible people are the ones that hold all conviction. And the, the, the rest of us weak, you know, lily-livered liberals um, lack all sense of conviction and vacate the sp political sphere. He could have been describing particularly in the United States and, to an extent, the UK, what has actually been happening in the era of Trump and Brexit, couldn't he? Yeah, I, I guess there's, you know, a couple of ways of thinking about this. One is, uh, you know, to think about what democracy itself is about. Um, and then the other is to think about what uh, politicians can do to help themselves uh, um, discover signal uh, in the noise. So I, I, I guess one way of thinking about democracy is that it, it it's a method for uh eventually reversing mistakes and detecting mistakes early so uh you know britain has been going through uh you know what to what is an out there to an outsider what seems like a remarkable thing um uh with the the procession of prime ministers that you've had um but on the other side it, it, it doesn't it speak to the health of the country that uh, uh when somebody is doing something absolutely catastrophic uh, that the system is capable of of coughing that person out, um, and uh, it might take some time. Uh, there might be all sorts of other things uh, mixed into it, but the, eventually Britain will, in my view, uh, get back to a, a kind of an equilibrium. It's just it's it, it's uh, to quote Gramsci, it's it's the time of monsters. There's lots of things happening at the moment, but I, I do think things uh, will eventually uh, settle down. I, I share your optimism, Shane, actually, um, although some of the things that I say on this podcast and in and some of my writings, people might get the opposite idea. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that, for not least the ones that you, you've just given there, because I, I do think that uh, pragmatism and learning are two important features of, of, of our nation, and, or, or nations, I should say. Um, and that one of the things that struck me about narcissism of small differences last year, about a big difference, actually, was the campaign run by the absolutely disastrous prime minister to be Liz Truss to be the uh, when she was competing with Sunak and Sunak lost and she won. It seems like 
years and years and years ago that all this happened, um, but in fact it was only last year. Uh, that it's hyperbolic discounting in action. <laughs> I think so, absolutely. You, you, you put it so well. One of the many things that, tiny things, well, big thing actually, that they competed over was their distaste, their hatred, their, you know, incredibly, um, you know, their t- coming for my beer type Ted Cruz anger was over the existence of solar and wind farms on British fields. It's an extraordinary thing, in my view, to get worked up about. Um, I think those new windmills are actually quite aesthetically beautiful and farmers should be free to, you know, put up what in their fields, whatever they want to. Um, but anyway, they disagreed. And one of the ways in which people in this country get, or some people in this country, and indeed in Ireland, get completely bent out of shape is if somebody wants to put some solar panels or a windmill up. And the economist in me has always said, well, well, just pay these people off. I mean, whatever their motivation, whatever their psychology is that drives them to these crazy uh, uh, bouts of anger, uh, out of all proportion to the problem that they're facing, is to just give them some money, give them some cheap electricity, for example, some subsidized power, and that'll soon sort it all out. But no, I actually suspect some people would be insulted by that. Really? Yeah, uh, that the, it's not about the money. It's about being heard. Okay. Um, and uh, that the, the framing here is as much a psychological one as it is an economic one. Um, that uh, they might actually be annoyed at themselves if they, if they took uh, the shilling, uh, or as, as the old phrase was, if they took the soup, uh, it, uh, it, they might actually uh, feel a sense of dissonance uh, from doing that. Uh, and maybe there's another way, and this this is a kind of a point that I was going to get to, that um, we could think about democracy in lots of different ways. And, and let, let's say, for example, that you're not allowed to put up uh, windmills in, in Yorkshire, for example, a, a notoriously windy place. Um, one way you could decide is, is to regionalize policy like this um, and to say to the people of Yorkshire, uh, we're going to have a series of citizens assemblies around Yorkshire um, and we're going to uh, talk through all the, the problems. We're going to give people the opportunity to be heard. We're going. Politicians have to become ringmasters and they may actually find that the majority of people think not too strongly that actually wind farms are fine. Um, they're not highly committed to it, uh, but they may actually discover that most people think on balance, yeah, they're fine. And there's a few extremists who want them everywhere, and there's another few extremists who want them absolutely nowhere. Uh, but the centre of gravity is mildly in favour. By actually going out and having conversations like this um, and doing it in the, in the right way, uh, you might find that actually a lot of what people are, are getting worked up about is, is not being paid off. It, it's allowing them to be heard, uh, to give them a voice, and to what you're trying to do, and I, I hate to keep rabbiting on about my, my recent book, but uh, what you're trying to do is engage in a, in a collective conversation uh, among people uh, that will allow you to determine where the centre of gravity is and where you can move it to. You know, So the, the Overton window is a, is a great concept in terms of what's acceptable. Um, and we've discovered in this country that actually citizens' assemblies can be a fantastic thing. I think the politicians were surprised over the uh, uh, equal right to marriage referendum and the, the assembly that preceded that and the uh, the re- more recent one on uh, abortion, that the uh, public were well ahead of where they thought they were. And uh, you had two-thirds in favour or more in both votes 
because you had this process. Um, I, I, you know, so my my own view is that actually, if if Pauls thought of themselves more as ringmasters, whose job it was is is to act as central speakers to organize and coordinate uh, conversation among the population and sample that, they would find themselves in a much much happier place than being two sword lengths apart in <laughs> the, the commons chamber or uh, whatever it happens to be. But this is actually a very hard thing for politicians to do because, you know, Pauls are tribal. They grow up within a political tradition. They may be born into it. And talking to people outside that tradition is hard. Now, I, I think in this country, it's probably easier because we're used to coalition governments going back to the 1940s. Um, uh, whereas I think in the UK, you've you had one coalition government from 2010 to 2015. And I, maybe there was another one before that. But I, I, I find it, I, I guess the inter-party government in the Second World War, which is going on for 90 years ago, is probably a, the, the, the last example. Um, I, and, I, and I just wonder if, if uh, coalitions allow Pauls to experience conversation that they wouldn't experience otherwise. Uh, and you get a greater level of stability out of, of countries that have uh, oscillations between coalition partners. Yeah, I think that what you've said there is incredibly important, particularly the, the earlier part about people needing to, have, to be heard. We all have a voice. I mean, we're, we're doing this today. Sometimes I think that, you know, being a podcaster or being a writer, being an artist of any kind, um, it, it, it's really an act of conceit in some ways in that you, you, the assumption is that you have something to say, something to paint, something to write that other people are going to be interested in or take something from. But we all clearly have in various shapes and forms the need to have our say. But the natural experiment about wind farms and whether or not you do it in your way or my way of just offer, offering people money Within the last 24 hours, that experiment has been announced in the UK in that the Sunak government has reneged on its promise not to build any more wind farms and is going to pay people to uh, uh, who have wind farms built near them and is going to stop something that um, we haven't talked about today, but probably we'll talk about next time, the blocking coalition the ability of these small shouty groups of people or sometimes just one individual to stop something from happening from people investing in their futures in this particular case. The the, the one person blocking coalition to wind farms, they're going to try and legislate against um, and also pay people off. So it, it'll be very interesting to see how this uh, new policy plays out in, in, the, in the UK and what it does for, for uh, environmentalism in general. Shane, I'm very conscious that I've taken far too much of your time again. So I just wanted to conclude there. It's a very arbitrary place to stop because we could talk for a lot longer about some of these things, indeed things that we haven't even begun to touch on. But let's leave something on the table for next time. And just I wanted to say thanks very much again to Professor Shane O'Mara, um, Professor of Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin for another great conversation. Uh, a whole lot of stuff in there that will leave me thinking uh, very deeply for a long period of time. So until next time, Shane, thank you very much. That's great, Chris. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it.
Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.